Well, friends, what are you most afraid of? What are you most afraid of? What do you fear the most? And some of us have small fears, like maybe some of us are scared of the dark or scared of spiders or barking dogs. I have an aunt who is deathly afraid of dogs. Some of you might be there. Or, or maybe you're scared of that weird relative that always pinches your cheeks. But we also have big fears too, don't we? We don't just have small fears. We have big fears. We have what we may call adult fears, like, like losing our jobs or losing our homes or even losing the ones that we love. Friends, to be honest, this world is really full of things that we could be scared of, that we could be fearful of. There are things in this world all around us that cause us to tremble. In our house, especially during hot and humid summers, we are reminded every year of how some of our children are very, very afraid of thunderstorms. It happens every summer when the big one comes, the first big one, and we're reminded, whether it's like 10, 11, 12 at night, thunder, lightning, wind, and rain, and inevitably a kid in our bed. But that's not what God's Word calls us to in some ways, is it? So what is it that you're afraid of? And, and how is it that a follower of Christ should face the fears of our lives, whether they are big or little fears? After all, Paul tells us of the promise in 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 1.7, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Not a spirit of fear. But the question is, what does that actually look like? What does it look like to not have a spirit of fear? Well, as we've been looking through the book of Acts since the spring, we have seen over and over again the fearlessness of God's people in that time. We've gotten instructions, not necessarily on what the life of Christians would look like, but what we as Christians should look like in our character as we continue to press forward in the mission that Jesus has given His kingdom people. And now we've been examining the life, really, of this missionary Paul, really ever since back in Acts 9. And it really begins to pick up life, Paul's life story in, in the middle part of Acts. And now we're getting to the end. So if, if you're a guest, you've come to the next to last sermon in our series through Acts. So I'm sorry about that. Keep coming. We're going to jump into Ruth in just a couple weeks. Really excited about that. But I pray that this will be helpful for you as well. Because as we come to the end of the book of Acts, we come to the end of Paul's missionary journey. We have seen over and over and over again a few different things. One of them is we've gotten a better understanding of what it looks like to proclaim the gospel. A gospel that's not just held out in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but the gospel is held out throughout the entirety of Scripture. Paul is over and over and over again, and Peter as well, and the other apostles have tied Jesus back to the Old Testament. We've learned what it looks like to face persecution, to continue to present the gospel in the face of hostility. And over the last few weeks, we've even thought about the place and the power of Jesus over the kings and the dynasties of this world. But today we're introduced to a new problem. Or to say it another way, another way we zoom in from seeing Paul before kings and before rulers and before governors to zooming into Paul's very character. Who Paul is, this man who wrote so much of the New Testament. And this morning we're going to explore how Paul handles fear and fury in this world, specifically in the face of hardship and, and travel and the ruin 
of a shipwreck. Which brings me really to something I want to point out here as we have just a couple minutes. It's, a, it's, it's really a tool for how to study our Bibles. Now, oftentimes when we come to our Bibles, even if you've been reading the Bible for many, many years, we can read passages like the one that we're going to look at today, and we can wonder, what is this in here for? What's this all about? What is the point of all this? What does God want me to understand? The, 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 what I like to call the what and the so what. What does this passage say, and so what? What does it actually mean for my life? When we come to parts of our Bible like, like this, like the one we are today, the best way to understand these passages, so it's a little tool for studying the Scriptures yourself, understand the point of it all is to look at the conversations. So as you come to the stories of the Bible, the, the, the narratives of the Bible, one of the ways that you can understand the kind of the point of what, what the author is driving home, what God wants us to see in this passage, is to look at the conversations that happen. And this is a good text for me to bring that up because there's really only one person who talks during the entire passage that we're going to look at today, and it's Paul. There's really nobody else who's speaking. There's really no other conversations except we'll see at the very end uh, uh, some native people speak to Paul. But other than that, the only person who really speaks during this whole entire chapter is Paul. And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to think today what really takes place in Paul's life, from who Paul is and what he is about. And so, I think more than anything, what Luke wants us to see here is Paul's character, who he is on the inside, how Paul is operating when he presses forward on his mission to Rome. It seems in this passage that we're going to look at here in just a moment that Luke wants us to see more than anything the fortitude and the resolve of Paul on his mission to go to Rome as God has given it to him. And why does Luke, the author of Acts, want us to see that? Because he wants, us to help us, he wants to help us understand that Christians, that this is a mark of Christians, that they are called to press on towards the goal which God has given them in glorifying his name and seeing his kingdom built here on earth as it is in heaven. So if you have, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. If you didn't bring your own Bible today, that's cool. That's all right. We have some there in the pew in front of you. And Acts 27 is found on page 880. Now, if you're new to the Bible, once you get to page 880, just look for that big number 27. That's where I'll begin reading in a moment. That's the chapter number, Acts 27. And as always, if, if you don't have a Bible of your own, friends, you have showed up to the right place today. We have some Bibles. We would love to give you one. They're on the foyer, uh, on the table in the foyer. You can grab one on your way out today. Normally, I read a portion of the passage and we all stand for the reading of God's Word, but instead today, I'm actually going to be reading the passage throughout the points. And so, before we even get into that, though, let me go ahead and give you the points. And, and I've done something that I don't normally do, uh, though some of you may be able to convince me to keep doing it if it's very helpful. And what I've done is I have put the points of the sermon in the bulletin. So, if you turn to page 12 you will find the points of the sermon today. And I think once you turn there, you'll see why I put them in there. Because there's some big words. There's some big words. Now, I don't know how many of you have learned any new words lately, but this morning we're going to learn some new words. Uh, I do want to point out one mistake, though, in the bulletin. Points one and two should be switched. So it should say being sagacious first and being magnanimous second. So that's how you say those two words, sagacious and magnanimous. And so we're going to look at these two words along with being courageous and being tenacious 
And we're going to see how Paul exudes all four of these things and helps us understand as Christians how we should walk in the same manner. So there's the four points. You don't have to write those down. They're already there for you. So you can take notes otherwise today. And my prayer for us, though, as we look at each of these things and what it means to be these things, is that God would grow us into men and women and children who have fortitude, who have resolve, who have the godly character that is necessary. And I say that word necessary important. That we'd have the godly character that is necessary to live in a twisted and wicked generation. So let's begin by looking at being sagacious in Acts 27, 1 through 12. Let me read that for us. Acts 27, 1 through 12. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some, of, some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking on a ship from Adam... Hold on, let me get it. Adramitium. I tried that so much because it looks so close to Adam and I just kept messing it up all week. So there you go. Picking up there in verse 2 then. Which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia. We put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. And putting out to sea from there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra of, Thysa, of Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete of Salomone coasting along it with difficulty. We came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the, the city of Lasia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because of the fast, was, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to the sea, to put out to sea from there on the charge that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, as we begin to think about this passage, some of you are already like, there's too many names there. What's going on here? It's just jumping from place to place. What is the point of all of this? Well, to get there, let me go ahead and give you a good definition of what this word sagacious means. And then I want us to begin to see how, what Paul exhibits here in this. And so, what does it mean to be sagacious? Well, a few smaller words to help you describe it. Sagacious means to really be wise, to be discerning, and to be prudent. The sagacious people among us are the ones who, who see pitfalls, who see slippery slopes, who see dangers, and they're able to avoid them, and then to help others do the same. Put into a Proverbs, Proverb 20, Proverbs 22, 3 explains it well when it says this, The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. So my question for you as we begin to look at this passage is, are you sagacious? Are you able to see the pitfalls of life and to avoid them on the front end? 
Are you able to see when your life or the lives of those around you is in danger and steer clear of an unwise path? It seems like from the Bible that this is something that's more learned than it is earned. Does that make sense? It's something that's much more of the nature of, of learning how to be sagacious, of, of being given eyes to see, to put it in Jesus' own language. And this is what we see Paul as a good example of here. Look back there. We see in those first six verses or so, we're really given the setting for the whole passage and the hardship of, about, of what's about to take place. And here Paul is finally being taken to Italy. And you'll notice the use of we there, that Luke is, is there for the journey as well. And they're finally going to make their way along with several of the prisoners. We don't know why they're prisoners, but they're going to be taken to Italy. And we know, though, over the last couple of weeks from what we've seen, why Paul is a prisoner. Paul has remained in chains by choice because he was told back in Acts 23.11 that Jesus, by Jesus himself that just as he had testified in Jerusalem, he was to go and testify in Rome. And so Paul was going there. They're going to Rome, Italy as prisoners in chains upon a ship. Well, actually upon several ships. They're transitioning back and forth. And we see this in the first two verses. They're sailing along the coast of Asia, porting at several places like Sidon, where Paul there is able because Julius the centurion lets him, he's kind to him, lets him go and visit his friends. Well, who are these friends? They're, they're the very ones which Paul had come to and shared the gospel with. And those churches had been planted in those places. And so Paul is able to go back and visit his friends in these, these small churches in these cities. It also tells us there in several places that they sailed under the lee of several small islands. And we don't talk like that anymore. And there's a couple of you that are sailors, and you may know what this means, but many of us don't. It's this idea of sailing under the protection of, under the safe harbor of, to, so that they would not have to weather the elements. They sailed close to the island to protect themselves. But to sail under the lee of these islands wasn't going to be enough. The sheer fact that this was necessary already begins to help us see the dangers and the difficulties that they were facing on this excursion. You see, Luke picked this up directly in verses 7 and 8. He says there, We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete, off Salmone, coasting along it with difficulty. We came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lacia. This helps us to begin to understand just how uncertain the times of sailing were. It's not like today when you get on an airplane or get on a boat and you trust the technology is good enough and you're just going to make it. That kind of pride of man that we exhibit today was not there. Every time you got on a boat, it was uncertain. Your fate was uncertain. And so we see this especially because of the kind of weather that they were up against. Luke highlights this by helping us see the time of year that it took place. You see there in verse 9, he says, Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over. What's the fast he's talking about here? It's the fast of the Day of Atonement for the Jews that took place in the fall. We see that, that much time has passed in their travels, and they're now entering into the winter season. And so, this is where being sagacious really becomes important. It's the first time there in verse 9 that we have actually someone speak. And as I said, it's Paul who speaks up. Out of all the crew, out of the centurion and all the other prisoners, 
Paul offers his wisdom to the centurion and by proxy to the captain himself. And what does he say? Look back at verse 9. Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Now what is Paul saying here? What's he trying to get across? I think many of us read that and we just assume that Paul is giving his two cents, offering his opinion, and, and there you go. But, but you have to remember the context. And we have to remember what Luke wants to teach us from this passage. You've you got to remember who Paul was. Paul was not a sailor by any means. He's not like Peter and James and John who were fishermen. They were the apostles who knew the sea. They knew boats. They knew how things worked. But Paul, Paul graduated from Pharisee University. Paul was an egghead. Paul was a smarty pants. Paul didn't go out on the water. He spent all of his time memorizing the Old Testament and learning how to live by the law. And then as an adult, killing Christians. And so here you have this guy giving advice to these seasoned seamen. Well, this advice he's given is not that of a storm-beaten sailor. The advice he gives is that of a simple follower of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says. Sirs, I perceive. There's the sagaciousness, the sagacity. That's a real word, I promise. This language of being sagacious here, that's the language of being able to discern, to be able to see, not with your physical eye, but with your spiritual eye, what is about to happen. That's the language of someone who's cultivated a relationship with the Holy Spirit and who's been given wisdom in that relationship. And friends, this is something too that we should cultivate. When it comes to the decisions of our lives, when it comes to the ships that we find ourselves sailing in, whether it be with our family life or our work life or even our free time, we must see that being a follower of Jesus means pursuing wisdom, pursuing understanding, pursuing prudence and discernment. Not just of His Word. Primarily that should be where we seek to understand. It would be God's Word. But we also must seek to understand God's world. The world that He's created and how it works. This is why the wisdom literature of the Scriptures is so important to us. We just had this conversation with my sons yesterday about the decisions that they make and the outcomes that they have. This is something that as parents we must help our children understand. I'm talking to my sons about some of the decisions they've made and how they're actually going backwards. But the call of God's Word is that they would grow up into manhood, that they would grow up into joyfully accepting responsibility for their lives and the lives of the people that God has given them. But sometimes in making foolish decisions, we actually go backwards into infancy. And wisdom means being able to look ahead, to be able to make right decisions based on the circumstances and, and based on what God's Word says about those circumstances. That being godly men is much better than staying boys and being babies. This is what we're called to in God's Word, friends. Proverbs 14, 8 tells us, The wisdom of the prudent is to discern his way, but the folly of fools is deceiving. Deceiving of who? The fools. In Proverbs 24, 3 and 4, By wisdom is a house built. 
And by understanding, it is established. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. And so if I could just make a point here, okay? And, and if I step on your toes, you're welcome. But as parents, if your house, not your physical house, but your, your, your familial house is falling apart, Proverbs 24 tells you why. By wisdom, a house is built. And so if your house is falling apart, there is some level of folly, of lack of wisdom that is being exhibited in your life. That's just what the Bible says. So if the Bible steps on your toes, not me. But I wonder what areas in your life do you need to be more sagacious, practicing wisdom and discernment, seeking insight and perception. I want to press you to examine your own hearts and the pride of man. Because the pride of man is the exact thinking that we see here from the centurion and the sailors. They don't listen to Paul. They instead decide to go their own way. And they move out and they end up in this bad place. We're reminded of Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that appears to be right, but in the end leads to death. And that's exactly what we see here. This is the deceiving of our hearts that, oh, this feels good. This looks good. I like the idea of this. But it's not actually godly wisdom. And in the end, it leads to death. What do you do when you're in those situations? That brings us to the second point of being magnanimous. Being magnanimous. I assume for most of this point, some of you are just going to be sitting there trying to say the word magnanimous over and over and over again. It's one of those words that once you get it, it's fun to say. Let's look back at the text. Acts 27, let's pick up in verse 13. Let me read through 22. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground at Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. That means to throw it overboard. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of being saved was at last abandoned. Let me stop there. Friends, we see here this idea of the storms of life in a physical storm. So in light of them, what does it mean to be magnanimous? What is magnanimity? What is being magnanimous? Well, in September of 1775, and again in September of 1787... So 12 years apart, the founding father, John Witherspoon, preached a, a sermon to the seniors of Princeton called Christian Magnanimity. And he listed five principles of magnanimity. He said being magnanimous is, one, to attempt great and difficult things. Two, to aspire after great and valuable possessions. Three, to encourage, encounter dangers with resolution. Four, to struggle against difficulties with perseverance. And five, to bear sufferings with fortitude and patience. 
And that last point shapes the way that we use the word today. As Pastor Kevin DeYoung puts it, the magnanimous person does not bear petty grudges, does not wallow in self-pity, does not demand payback, does not advertise his suffering, and does not stoop to settle every score. Friends, we live in times where every person seems to be jockeying to be champion of woe is me and king of my sorrow is worse than yours. We live in a time where it pays to throw pity parties and the loudest are often the most influential, where apologies are routinely demanded and offendedness is next to godliness. So we certainly have something to learn here from Paul about being magnanimous as well. It all begins, as you see there in verse 13, the crew thinks everything's okay. And so they're just sailing along. They throw up the sails and here we go. And then this tempestuous wind that's so bad it has a name, the Northeaster begins. And Northeastern winds, they would come down off the mountains without warning and gust into it and hit another wind current and it would just get crazy. And so it tosses the ship to an extent where they began to throw over the cargo because they need to lighten the ship. And then they throw over the tackle, like, like the stuff that they would fish with. So there goes their means of feeding at, right there, all overboard. And it begins to grow and to grow and to grow there. And in 16 through 19, we see this tension rise as the, as the crew tries to do everything they can. And then we get to that statement in verse 20, that heavy statement in verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was last, at last abandoned. Don't fly past that verse, friends. Sit in it for a second. What is Luke saying here? They had ditched a lot of cargo, a lot of fishing gear. They had fought against the storm by getting this small boat that they would use to go to and from places. They get that up onto the deck they secured the ship with these cables, and yet it was not enough for nature itself. There was no sun by day, no stars by night. They had no way directionally to tell where they were going. They could not chart their course any longer. The gale force storm continues to beat them over and over and over again. To the point that Luke, who includes himself in the statement there, see, says... All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Now friends, when was the last time you were there? Where all hope of being saved was abandoned. I don't think this portion of scripture is here just to help us understand how the early church dealt with storms. I believe Luke includes it here. God has it in His Word to help us understand the, the metaphorical reality of the storms of our life and to be able to feel with Him, though we may have never been in this situation, what it feels like to have the wind and the waves constantly crashing against us and the hopelessness of having a storm-tossed life, that there's despair everywhere that we turn, that there's fear and gloom and realizing that you're utterly out of control. And it's at times like this, some of you know this full well. When you feel like you've lost all control, that you begin to panic, that you begin to grasp for control, that you begin to maneuver, that you begin to lash out, to scratch and claw. And you're, you're like one of those animals that, that, that animal control catches with the little stick and the thing, and they put it over the cat's neck, and the cat's just going crazy. That's how some of us feel. 
In the situations of our lives when we feel like we can't change things, we can't control things, there's no sun by day and there's no stars by night. But is that the way for us? Is that the way that God calls Christians to be? Well, this is where Christian magnanimity is most important. Look at how Paul responds. Go back to the text. Verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, just notice his leadership here, his resolve here. He said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Here again we have this picture of being magnanimous. What does Paul say to them in the face of suffering? The key is in the words. What does Paul say? In verse 22, he gets right at it. Yet now I urge you to take heart. To take heart, to be filled with hope, to bear up under this trial. And some of you need to hear that this morning, that the answer for the storms of your life is not to ditch the ship and try to make it on your own, but it is to take heart and to bear it out. Why? Well, look back. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. That's not very encouraging for us in our own hardships, right? We're not on a literal ship. So why is this, how can this be hopeful for us? How can we take heart? Well, that's, that's not the thing that Paul's getting at here. That's a byproduct. If we keep reading, we actually find out why he's magnanimous and why he tells them to take heart. Look at what he says. An angel of the Lord came to Paul in the night and told him not to be afraid because God would save him because God still had work for him to do in Rome. So why does Paul tell these men to take heart? Verse 25, because I have faith that in God it will be exactly as I have been told. Friends, this is where it is. Because sometimes, if we're honest, cancer wins. We lose our jobs. Friendships are damaged beyond repair. We are in sinking ships. How can we take heart? How can we be magnanimous? How can we stand in the face of great difficulty and great suffering? When your kids are screaming, when the co-workers are annoying, when the money runs out, when the car breaks down, or just when your favorite dress gets snagged on a nail, or you step on another Lego in the middle of the night, how do you respond? How do you respond when the world gets pulled out from underneath you? Paul tells us here that the only way we can continue to stand is through faith in the one true God. It's through taking up His precious promises. Promises like Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work and you will carry it out to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. 
Friend, if you do not believe that God will supply every one of your needs, then he's saying here you do not believe in the riches of the glory of Jesus Christ. But we can be certain of it. Because strengthening his people for the task at hand is exactly what Jesus is doing as the Son of God. This is what he's been doing since the book of Acts, and it's what he continues to do to this day. We sing the song, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, all the time. What does the second verse of the song say? Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, spread his praise from shore to shore, how he came to pay our ransom through the saving cross he bore. Now get this, how he watches over his loved ones, those he died to make his own, how for them he's interceding, pleading now before the throne. Do you know that Jesus Christ who died as a payment for our sins, who rose to conquer and defeat death, and who lives for us so that we might glorify God here and now. This is the Jesus who is the source of all Christian magnanimity. Whether we're pastors or parents or workers or friends or family or church members, Where can we show the sort of Christian magnanimity that our world needs so badly right now? This is what the world needs today. This is is living evangelism. Bearing burdens, forgiving offenses, setting examples in generosity, long obedience in the same direction. It's not simply a way to win friends and influence people. This is the way of the cross. This is the way of our Savior, the one who hung there saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And for Paul, it doesn't stop there as we move to the third portion of our text and being courageous. Now, maybe you didn't know what being sagacious or being magnanimous meant, but I hope that you at least have some idea what the word courageous means. But the problem with that is that I think most of us, our definition of courage or being courageous has been co-opted by the world. It has been influenced by the world's idea of what courage is. And I think we see this in many ways, right? When when our children are are afraid of the dark in the middle of the night or they have to get up to bat for the first time and they're nervous that they're going to strike out, what do we say to them? Have courage. You can do it. Take courage. You got this. But is that what Christian courage is? For Paul, as we're about to see, the ability to do really hard things, to face a frightful future, is not couched in what he can do. Let me say that again. For what Paul's about to go through, his courage is not couched, is not bent in what he can do. But it's couched in the very one who is true to his word and fulfills all of his purposes and his promises. Let's look back at the text. I'm going to read a larger portion now, 27 through 44. It really gets to the end of the chapter. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, so so the sailors are doing some trickery here, we're going to go throw out anchors. 
but they're going to get on the ship and they're going to leave, right? Paul says to, said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and let them into the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to make for the land, and the rest on planks and on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. It's at this point, as they're standing on the boat, the storm has totally messed things up. They have no idea what they're, where they're at. They have no idea what to do. That they realize that something outside of them has to help. We see in verses 27 through 29 where this crew is taking these soundings. It's a way for them to be able to tell how deep the water is where they're at. What do they find? Well, they find something worth being fearful of again. It's no longer the storm that they're fearful of, but it's the shore itself. That if the boat runs aground, it may break up and it may sink and they may all die. And there in verse 30, we find out how this fear has gotten the best of them. It says the sailors, they were attempting to escape the ship. Now this might have seemed like the courageous thing for them to do, right? Forget this boat. I'm going to save my life. Let's all get out of here. They jump in the boat and try to paddle for shore. But what this would have meant was certain doom for Paul and the rest of the crew and the prisoners because they didn't know how to sail a ship. And so Paul gives his words of advice, being sagacious and all, to the centurion one more time. And, and what's interesting here is that the centurion listens to him this time, right? He responds to him and Paul says that unless everyone stays on the ship, people will die very, and it will, it's going to end very badly. Now here's the question, what do you make of this warning? God had told Paul that no one on the ship would die. And so is Paul contradicting God here? God says nobody's going to die, and Paul says if they leave, everybody's going to die. So is Paul contradicting God's word? No. And this is important for us to understand when it comes to being courageous. Paul's courage here, his bravery, is what actually saves these men. And it's born out of his courage and his bravery and his assurance and who God is. He knows that God can save them and will save them and complete His promise. And because of that, God then uses Paul's warning as the means of keeping all the men on board. You see how that works there? We have God's sovereign promise that He will fulfill what He has said that He will fulfill. 
And yet Paul is responsible then for these men and he takes responsibility and he takes responsibility of God's promise and makes this statement and God uses Paul's statement as the very means of keeping them all on board. This helps us understand the warnings in Scripture and how God uses warnings to hold us. It's going to help us when we get back into Hebrews in the new year again. But it's in those moments before they run aground and tossed against the shore that we see Paul come before the whole crew, don't we? A prisoner presiding over a feast. He breaks bread. And Paul, uh, Luke highlights it there in verse 35, that after he encouraged them, he turns and he gives thanks to the God that he worships, the God that he has faith in. And he says, it says because of that, they too were encouraged. And here we learn what true courage looks like, friends. Here we learn what it looks like to be a courageous Christian. It's not founded in ourselves and what we can do in our own wisdom and our own insight and our own strength and ability to get things done. But it's found in who God is, an assurance that He will complete the work that He has began. This is how courage is found in, in mothers who set out to educate their children or church members who guard one another against sin or, or children who who care for their elderly parents or, or men who get up every day and go to work even when they don't like their jobs very much. This is what courage looks like. Courage is not fundamentally for the big, bad, scary things, but it's for continuing to push forward when it's difficult and when it's hard in the mundane things. It's born by fully relying on God to provide everything and carry us through every shipwreck of our lives. And that's exactly what he does here in this final portion. It's there on the shore of this unknown island that we come to the final scene. We're going to spend just a few minutes here because we're going to look back at it again next week in the final chapter, looking at chapter 28 as a whole. But let me ease into it this week by looking at those first 10 verses and this idea of being tenacious, being tenacious. Now, maybe you didn't know what sagacious and magnanimous meant, Thought you knew what courage meant. Tenacious is probably somewhere in the middle, right? We, we use that word from time to time, having tenacity. In this final section, we're going to see what that actually means. Let's look at Acts 28, 1 through 10. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, he's always serving, you see that? When he had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. We see here 
as Paul's gathering these sticks, that this viper comes out of the fire and latches onto his hands. Now, in this time period, that would have been a death sentence. We see this viper, he's bitten him, and he, he should have been good as dead. And yet he doesn't die. Now, this is our, not an argument for taking up snakes and passing them around, though I know some of y'all's family likes to do that. It's not what this is about. This is about something else here. And it all goes back to Paul's tenacity, his tenacious nature in moving forward. And I want to land here especially. Do you notice what the people say to him? Notice again what the people say. Help us understand the point. Look back at verse 4. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. They're right. Do you realize that? They're right. Paul may have escaped the sea, but these people have insight enough to say he has not escaped his past. And this man who once murdered Christians is now having judgment poured out on him in this viper. And yet he does not die. Instead, he moves forward, healing this man's father and healing the entire island. He presses forward using every opportunity to glorify God. The question is, why? What does it teach us and how does this make us tenacious? And friends, the answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reason that the snake bit Paul and he did not die is because judgment and justice had already been poured out on another for his behalf. This is the goodness and the glory of the gospel. This is what being a Christian is about. In the midst of vipers and shipwrecks and storms that we would push forward. It reminds me of something that I mentioned several times back at the beginning of this year. A year that for some of us has certainly been full of storms. Some of us has faced ongoing loss, even loss of loved ones. We've faced upheaval of our jobs. Some of you began this year in a different church and now you find yourself here. Some of us have battled with bodies that continue to fall apart on us. Some of us have just been finding again the same old temptations that we feel like we face every single day. And one of the things that I said at the beginning of this year as your pastor, I say here to you again that the call of the Christian is to move forward. It's to charge up the hill. It's to continue to fight. And as we come to the conclusion of Acts next week, this is the thing that we need to see, that the call of the Christian life is an uphill battle for the kingdom of God. The call of the Christian life is to continually take hold of joy in the midst of storm after storm after storm. The call of the Christian life is to keep pushing forward day and night. As Paul would later write to young Pastor Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Friends, in his sagaity, 
in his magnanimity, in his courage and tenacity, we see Paul here taking hold of the gospel. And this is the same call on each one of us. If we're ever to grow in wisdom, if we're ever to grow into being able to bear burdens and face sorrows and to have assuring courage and to keep pressing forward, fighting the fight of faith, we must look to the one who has already gone before and done it all, who has purchased for us hope in these days. Friends, realize we're not called to be superheroes. Neither was Paul. We're called to be faithful followers of God, trusting in Him in the big and in the little. I don't know if you noticed this, but miracles happen throughout the book of Acts. It's normal course of things, but in this passage, aside from him not dying and him healing the people, there's not really any miracles happening in this passage. It seems like the miracles have kind of slowed down a little bit here at the end of Acts at least. And we see more and more that the hope, the solace, and the foundation is the gospel, preaching it and believing it and holding on to it. And that's the same thing we're called to. As we sang this week in our Bible studies, let me end with it here. First from Christ, the sure and steady anchor. Christ, the sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm. When the winds of doubt blow through me and my sails have all been torn, in the suffering and in the sorrow, when my sinking hopes are few, I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. So friends, let us cling to Christ. Let us weather the storms and push forward in the fight of faith. Let me pray. God, as we prepare now to come to this table, remembering the one who gave himself over, who handed himself over to death, even death on a cross, so that we may have the strength to fight, the strength to stand, and the strength to pull forward, push forward. God, we pray and we ask, Lord, that you would enliven our hearts to worship you and to follow you with all that we are. God, use us. We ask and we pray that you would use us mightily in this time and this place that we, like Paul, would be godly men and women and children who honor you with our whole lives. Would you do this work only that you can? In Jesus' name, amen.